If we can, we should. If we can, we should has become a kind of mantra in modern medicine. Faced with a choice between certain death, long-term chronic ill health, and the tantalising prospect of a cure, few of us can resist choosing more treatment. But the experience of too many people who choose new drugs and aggressive medical interventions isn't what they imagined. And as we've seen, there's a growing body of evidence that says terminally ill people who choose more interventions are likely to endure more illness, more complications and less autonomy than those who choose palliative care. Compared to people who choose palliative care, they're more likely to die in an intensive care ward of a hospital, tethered to tubes and machines, with little privacy, often in a setting that imposes a relentless regime of disruption. Deep, restorative, uninterrupted sleep is not an option, as anyone who's spent time in a hospital knows. But this isn't what folks imagine for themselves. It isn't their idea of good health care, and certainly not their vision of a good death, whatever that may mean. And the final irony? The odds are they'll die sooner than people who choose palliative care. For people with terminal and life-shortening illnesses, the allure of gaining more time through a medical miracle is the fantasy of a life briefly interrupted. They might imagine that life-extending or curative therapies will involve a benign and temporary change in circumstances that nothing could be further from the truth. Too often the side effects of surgery, radiotherapy and other aggressive interventions diminish a person's ability to resume their former life, to say nothing of fulfilling their hope for a better, longer life. For five years Stephen Jenkinson was program director of a palliative care outreach program at a major teaching hospital in Canada. In that role, he witnessed the often devastating impacts that last gasp medical interventions had on terminally ill people. He also saw people who were wholly unprepared for the existential crisis triggered by living longer in the face of certain death. Here's a quote. More time, when it finally kicks in, is the rest of a dying person's life and the rest of that life will be lived in the never-before-known shadow of the inevitability of their dying. For the first time in their lives, they will live knowing that they will die from what afflicts them. More time means more time to live their dying. It means more symptoms, more drugs for the symptoms, more drugs for the side effects of the first drugs, more weakness and diminishment, and dependence to go along with more time with the kids or the grandkids, or walks in the park with the dog. That's not all it means, not necessarily, but more time almost always means more dying. No one's born, no one walks in the park or sits looking out the window knowing how to die like that, slowly and visibly and knowingly. Very few here on these shores, where death phobia rules, learn how or want to. A lot of simple things can be done to ease the pain and discomfort experienced by sick and dying people. In his extraordinary TED talk, the palliative care doctor BJ Miller speaks of how 
the little things can make a world of difference in end-of-life care. He says, take Jeanette. She finds it harder to breathe one day to the next due to ALS. Well, guess what? She wants to take up smoking again. And French cigarettes, if you please. Not out of some self-destructive bent, but to feel her lungs filled while she has them. Or Kate. She just wants to know her dog Austin is lying at the foot of her bed, his cold muzzle against her dry skin, instead of more chemotherapy coursing through her veins. She's done that. Sensuous, aesthetic gratification, where in a moment, in an instant, we are rewarded for just being. So much of it comes down to loving our time by way of the senses, by way of the body, the very thing doing the living and the dying. But sometimes even palliative care patients need major surgery or radiotherapy to lessen the devastation wrought by a metastasizing cancer as it strangles and crushes vital organs and viscera in its path. But every procedure, every incision, every dose of drugs and radiation has an unintended consequence for a person already weakened by disease and what's already been done to them in the name of healthcare. People have different reasons for stopping their medical treatment. Some are philosophical or spiritual, some are practical, and some come from a conviction that whatever they might gain isn't worth the cost. For some people, even the certainty of coming out on the other side of weeks of distress doesn't justify the physical and emotional price they have to pay, wrote the writer and surgeon Sherla Newland. Dr. Atul Gawande has said that people with a serious illness often have priorities beyond simply prolonging their lives. But the healthcare system's mantra of if we can, we should is often so potently seductive that people can find themselves agreeing to new, experimental or even aggressive interventions when deep down they have different goals and desires for themselves. He says, Surveys find that their top concerns include avoiding suffering, strengthening relationships with family and friends, being mentally aware, not being a burden on others, and achieving a sense that their life is complete. Our system of technological medical care has utterly failed to meet our needs, and the cost of this failure is measured in far more than dollars. The palliative care doctor, Linda Sheehan, says dying well is really no different from living well insofar as it calls for conscious awareness, reflection, planning and being mindful and good-hearted about how we conduct our relationships. She says dying well is like an action phrase. People die well as part of how they live their life. It's part of the journey. So thinking about it as something separate to life is a category mistake. To the question, what does dying well mean, I'd say it means the same thing as living well and ageing well. She goes on to say, of course, there are some extra features to mention. From a medical viewpoint, it includes good pain and symptom control. It also calls for good preparation for death, being aware that it's coming and getting ready for dying and clear decision-making as people approach dying that's informed by clear goals and priorities.
there are also important existential questions to consider. One is to achieve a sense of completion, meaning that life has fulfilled its meaning. Another is to consider what our legacy is going to be and to complete a life review as part of achieving completion and what we leave behind. She also says, Achieving completion has several important community dimensions to it, including the gathering together of friends, communion with loved ones, and the resolution of interpersonal conflict. There's also something to consider in terms of reciprocity and our capacity to give something back to carers, family, and loved ones. I'd say there's something in the phrase used by Dame Cicely Saunders, who initiated the palliative care movement in the UK. She said, You matter because you're you, and you matter to the very end. This resonates very much with what I have seen among dying people. They want to be seen, known, understood, and appreciated for how they've lived. Having a deep felt sense of this really helps us die well. She also says, I also think that having an absence of fear helps us die well. That some sort of peace has been come to. That dying is here. And that it's part of living. And that it's okay. I think this is one of our biggest problems. Not just in the medical milieu, but in society more broadly. Seeing that our time for dying has arrived can help us to frame the time that's left. Dr Sheen consults to health professionals about issues that come to the fore as people approach dying and death. As a palliative care specialist, she's also responsible for the medical needs of dying people. But dying is more than a physical phenomenon. As she says, dying raises a host of existential issues and dying well calls for preparation, recognition, acceptance and closure. But with so much cultural impetus driving us to seek cures and the allure of more time, who can guide us in the road less travelled? Who will support us in saying enough is enough? Who can mentor us in our preparations for dying and death?